Gene Hermansky made his Major League debut as a 23-year-old outfielder on August 15, 1943 for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He never made flashy headlines, but nonetheless, Hermansky had a solid career as he played for the Dodgers, Cubs, and Pirates over his 10 years in the majors. Perhaps one of the things history will remember Hermansky for most is something that history may, may not even remember that Hermansky did. It was something that he said to a teammate four years after breaking into the majors himself. His teammate was having a tough inaugural season in 1947, and although many of the players on the Dodgers didn't actually like the rookie, Hermansky stood up for him. The rookie? A man by the name of Jackie Robinson. Robinson made history when he broke the racial barrier, becoming the first black player in Major League Baseball in 1947. Hermansky, Robinson's teammate, quickly became a fan of the speedy infielder. In the 2013 movie named after Robinson's number, 42, Hermansky's quote is incorrectly attributed to Dodgers shortstop Pee Wee Reese. In fact, it was Hermansky who said, and I quote, Maybe tomorrow we'll all wear number 42. That way they won't be able to tell us apart. End quote. Now, Jackie Robinson's number is the only number that's officially retired by all of Major League Baseball, meaning that no player can have the number 42. But in 2004, Major League Baseball took Hermansky up on his offer. Since that season, on April 15th of each year, every single one of the 750 active players in Major League Baseball wears the same number, Jackie's number 42, in honor of the impact that Jackie Robinson had on the league and the world. I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. It was almost 6 p.m. on January 31st, 1919, when Jerry and Mally Robinson welcomed their fourth son and fifth child into the world. Jack Roosevelt Robinson, whose middle name was in honor of President Teddy Roosevelt, who died 25 days earlier, was born on a plantation near Cairo, Georgia, which is about 35 miles north of Tallahassee, Florida. Jackie's mother, Mally, was a smart, hardworking woman who was doing all she could to better the life for her family. Jerry Robinson, on the other hand, wanted to move from their growing farm into the nearby town of Cairo. When Mally refused, Jerry tried to put her out, even going so far as having an affair with another married woman. But Mally refused to leave. And so only six months after Jackie was born, the first major hurdle came into his life when his father, Jerry Robinson, went to visit his brother in Texas. He never returned. For a while, Mally managed the farm and five children on her own, but she needed a fresh start. So when Jackie was about a year and a half, Mally moved her family from Georgia to California. With the help of a niece, Mally bought a home for a young family in Pasadena. Growing up as the only black family in the neighborhood, Jackie was no stranger to racial torment. But seeing his mother's strength, Jackie grew up learning how to stand up for his rights. Needless to say, Jackie's mother was a huge influence on his life. Now, another huge influence on his life were his siblings, perhaps most notably his athletic older brother. Mac Robinson would actually make history of his own as he ended up falling just point four seconds behind Jesse Owen in the 200-meter race at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. He earned a silver medal behind Owens' gold. Growing up, it was his brothers Mac and Frank who pushed Jackie into sports. At John Muir High School in 1935, Jackie played shortstop and catcher in baseball, quarterback in football, and guard in basketball. 
Oh, and of course, he ran track, too. Now, after high school, Jackie wanted to stay near his family, so he decided to go to UCLA. In May 1939, Jackie's best friend and brother, Frank, was killed in a motorcycle accident. Jackie was crushed. To, to cope with the grief, he poured his energy into school. Again, Jackie showed his talent in athletics as he played for UCLA's football, basketball, baseball, and track teams. In his sophomore year at UCLA, Robinson met Rachel Isom, and the two started dating. As they started to get serious, Jackie and Rachel got engaged, but they knew they'd need to start thinking about their future. Rachel wanted to go to nursing school, while Jackie didn't see much of a future supporting a family by playing sports. So in March 1941, with only months left to graduating, Robinson dropped out of UCLA to take a job as an assistant athletic director at a camp in California. But his love for playing sports never wavered, so when Robinson had the chance to play semi-professional football for the Honolulu Bears, he took advantage. It was a short stint, and Robinson ended up leaving Hawaii on December 5th, 1941. Two days later, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, just a few miles from where Robinson had been days before. Now, as it did for everyone, the war changed Robinson's life as he was drafted into the Army in 1942. While in the Army, Robinson was offered the chance to play for the baseball team at Fort Riley, Kansas. But Robinson wasn't willing to accept a team policy that would require him to sit if the opposing team didn't want to play with a black player on the field. So instead, he transferred to Fort Hood, Texas, where really the discrimination continued. On the evening of July 6, 1944, Robinson's military career came crashing down. He was a second lieutenant at the time, and he hopped on a bus with a fellow officer's wife when the driver ordered him to sit on the back of the bus. Robinson refused because he knew that the army had outlawed segregation. And when they reached their destination, the driver called the military police and had Robinson arrested. Robinson stood on trial at a military court in August of 1944, where he faced a battery of charges that included public drunkenness, even though Robinson didn't drink. The Army couldn't find any evidence of wrongdoing, and the panel of nine officers, all of whom were white, acquitted Robinson of the charges. It was because of this court-martialing that actually kept Robinson from going overseas when the rest of his battalion, the 761st Tank Battalion, went on to become the first black tank unit to see combat in World War II. After the trial, Robinson transferred to Camp Breckenridge, Kentucky, where he met a former baseball player for the Kansas City Monarchs. Now, the Monarchs were a team in the Negro American Leagues at the time, and this it was at this meeting that led Robinson to write to the Monarchs to ask for a tryout. Not hearing anything right away, Robinson went on about his life. He received an honorary discharge from the Army in November of 1944 and moved back to California to be with his then-fiancée, Rachel. In 1945, Robinson's life took a turn when the Monarchs offered him $400 a month to play for them. Now, that's about $5,300 in today's money. After much thought, he accepted their contract and began his professional baseball career. That year, Robinson batted 387 with five homers and 13 stolen bases in only 47 games. The ability to make some money with the Monarchs kind of boosted Robinson's morale, and it was in 1945 that Robinson tried out for his first Major League Baseball team. It was the Boston Red Sox, and they were hosting a special tryout for four black players, one of them being Jackie Robinson. Although really, the tryouts were nothing more than a formality, and nobody made it onto the team, but it did give Jackie a glimpse into life in the majors. 
And that glimpse didn't look good. Now, Robinson left the tryouts utterly humiliated after he was subjected to an onslaught of racial slurs and bombardments. And as history now shows, the Boston Red Sox ended up being the very last team to break the racial barrier when they finally promoted a man named Pumpsy Green from their minor league organization in 1959. Still, the tryouts were about to have a big impact on Robinson's life because even though he wouldn't make it on the Red Sox, other teams in the majors were looking at breaking the racial barrier. The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Now, it was Brooklyn Dodgers president and general manager Branch Rickey, who's played by Harrison Ford in the movie 42, who ended up interviewing Robinson for a possible spot on the Dodgers roster. But unlike in the movie, Ricky didn't come up with Robinson on his own. In fact, many people considered a man named Josh Gibson to be the best black baseball player. Gibson had recently come off a season with an incredible 467 batting average with 55 homers in 137 games. But it was Wendell Smith, a writer for the Black Weekly paper The Pittsburgh Courier, who discussed potential prospects with Ricky and ended up influencing him to pick Robinson. In 42, Smith is played by Andre Holland. Now in the movie 42, Robinson eventually stands up to Ricky, and these lines are actually true. Robinson said, quote, Are you looking for someone who's afraid to fight back? End quote. To which Ricky replied that he was looking for a player with, quote, enough guts not to fight back. End quote. Ricky knew that life wouldn't be easy for Robinson, but he also knew that Robinson could help the Dodgers win ballgames. Robinson agreed to turn the other cheek to the inevitable racial onslaught, and in return, Ricky made a verbal agreement to a contract of $600 a month, or about $8,000 a month in today's dollars. This agreement would prove to be easier said than done for Robinson. But as is the case with most Major League players, Robinson didn't make the jump to the highest levels right away. For the 1946 season, Robinson would be playing for the Dodgers minor league team, the Montreal Royals. Still, it was a historic moment, and on November 1st, 1945, Robinson became the first black player in the International League since the 1880s when he signed a minor league contract to play for the Royals. And just like in the movie, representatives from the Dodgers and the Royals were gathered around as he signed the contract. In 42, the Royals manager, a man by the name of Clay Hopper, is threatened by Ricky when he expresses racism towards Robinson. In truth, Hopper, who's played by Brett Cullen in 42, asked Ricky to assign Robinson to any of the other Dodgers minor league teams. Ricky refused and Robinson stayed on the Royals. 
Hopper, who himself was opposed to integration between races in baseball, did his job despite his own racist tendencies. And Robinson later reported that Hopper actually treated him well. That year, Hopper won Manager of the Year for all minor league teams. Now, another incident in 42 occurs in Sanford, Florida, when Robinson is greeted at home plate by a sheriff who utters all sorts of racial slurs as he threatens Robinson. This actually happened, although the situation was a little different than in the movie. This was in spring training, so players from all over the Dodgers organization were together. And Robinson actually wasn't the only black player there, as Ricky had just recently signed another man by the name of Johnny Wright in January of 1946. But he was still in the minor leagues, and uh, since the Dodgers didn't have their own facility at the time, whether or not the team could play was really at the whim of the locals in that area. So while it wasn't at home plate, the local police chief at Stanford did threaten to shut down the Dodgers' ability to play there if Robinson and Wright didn't stop training with the team. Unfortunately, the Dodgers succumbed to pressure in this incident, and instead of staying, Robinson was sent about 40 miles to another training facility in Daytona Beach. And that certainly wouldn't be the only time that Robinson was a victim of racism. Now, another incident that the movie didn't show actually happened in Jacksonville, about 100 miles north of Daytona Beach, when the players showed up to the stadium to find that the city's park and public property director had ordered the stadium to be padlocked shut. Or there was another incident that just 25 miles from Sanford in Deland, Florida, when a game was called off because of faulty electrical lighting, except that it was a day game, so they didn't even need lights. And that was just in spring training. Now, the fans in Montreal loved Robinson, so anytime the Royals came home after a road trip, it offered him a little reprieve, albeit a small one, from the brutalities of it all. Still, no one could deny Robinson knew how to play. Despite the adversities, he ended up leading the International League that year with a 349 batting average as he went on to be named the league's most valuable player. And people came to see him play. In 1946, it's estimated that over 1 million people went to games where he played. Considering that this is minor league baseball in the mid-1940s, just after World War II, where spending money was tight for a lot of people, that's huge. But 1946 would be the only year in Montreal for Robinson. Six days before opening day in 1947, the Dodgers called him up to the majors. In 42, Dodgers manager Leo DeRocher is on the phone with Branch Rickey when he says he'd play an elephant if it could help him win games. And this quote is a little bit off, but it's a spin-off of what actually happened. You see, Robinson's promotion to the majors led to a petition among the Dodgers players who refused to play with him. And this actually happened, but just like in the movie, it was DeRocher, who's played by Christopher Maloney in the movie, who stood up for him. DeRocher learned of the petition against Robinson, and he wouldn't have it. He gathered the team and said, and I quote, I do not care if the guy is yellow or black or if he has stripes like a zebra. I'm the manager of this team and I say he plays. What's more, I say he can make us all rich. And if any of you cannot use the money, I will see that you are all traded, end quote. Of course, while DeRocher's rant helped stem the brewing mutiny, it didn't make everything magically okay. And it didn't help that, just like in the movie, DeRocher ended up getting suspended for the entire 1947 season. Although in the movie, it seemed to be pinned solely on an affair that DeRocher was having. In truth, DeRocher did have an affair with the actress Larin Day, but his suspension had more to do with his feud with the Yankees owner, Larry McPhail, who also happened to be a close friend of Happy Chandler, Major League Baseball's commissioner. 
So as DeRocher eloped with Day, he was forced to watch from the stands as the Dodgers scout, Burt Schotten, took over as interim manager for the season. And so it was amidst swirling controversy that on April 15, 1947, Jackie Robinson made history yet again as he became the first black player in major leagues since racial segregation in the league began in the 1880s. Now in 42, one of the defining moments for Robinson happens when the Dodgers are visiting Philadelphia for a game with the Phillies. In the movie, the Phillies manager, who's played by Alan Tudyk, makes a scene as he spits racist slurs at Robinson. This actually happened. Ben Chapman, the Phillies manager, led the onslaught as both he and the rest of the Phillies players hurled insults at Robinson from their dugout during the game on April 22, 1947. Unlike the movie, though, Robinson didn't go into the dugout and bash his bat against the wall. As he promised he'd do, Robinson turned the other cheek. Now, up until then, the Dodgers were torn, as evidenced by their petition to stop playing with Robinson just a few weeks before. But thanks to Chapman's slurs, the Dodgers players defended their teammate. And it wasn't until later that Branch Rickey recalled that moment as something that unified the Dodgers. He actually credited Chapman, saying that he, and I quote, did more than anybody to unite the Dodgers. When he poured out that string of unconscionable abuse, he solidified and unified 30 men, end quote. Of course, not all the players hated Robinson. Lee Handley, the Phillies' third baseman, actually offered some words of encouragement to Robinson, something that Robinson later noted as the first time an opposing player did so. Another player who offered words of encouragement was Jewish baseball star Hank Greenberg, who had heard plenty of his own racial slurs throughout his career. One of the more momentous occasions in the movie happened when Dodgers shortstop Pee Wee Reese puts his arm around Robinson on the field in front of Reese's own family. Now again, this happened. It was the Dodgers' first road trip of the season, and during the pregame practice, Jackie Robinson was getting heckled by fans in Cincinnati. Reese, who was the Dodgers' team captain at the time, heard the fans and went over to Robinson. After a brief chat, he put his arm around Robinson, and the crowd went silent. Later in the year, Robinson was joined in the major leagues by another black player. Larry Doby became the second black player in the major leagues when he joined the Cleveland Indians on July 5, 1947, just 11 weeks after Robinson. While this didn't slow down the hardships, it did give Robinson someone else to talk to, and the two frequently talked via telephone throughout the season. And the movie 42 wraps up with Robinson's first season, and when he faced Pirates pitcher Fritz Ostermuller, a man who had purposely hit Robinson in the head earlier in the season. In reality, Ostermuller, who was a lefty pitcher, not a righty as shown in the movie, hit Robinson in his left wrist, not in the head. Ostermuller had studied Robinson's batting technique and realized that Robinson not only crowded the plate, but he also lunged at pitches. Now, this is something that Rachel Robinson actually says at one point in the movie. So in the movie, when they first meet, Ostermuller hits Robinson in the head. But an article in the paper from that game on May 17, 1947, shows what actually happened and actually offers some insight into how much tension there was at the time. Now, here's a quote from Ostermuller in the article. Quote, he didn't give the pitcher much room. I didn't like that at all because I want my half of the heart of the plate and no batter, no matter who he is, will crowd me out of my share. I told my wife the night before I pitched that I might have trouble with Robinson, that one of my pitches would hit him if he didn't move back. I knew too some people would say it was intentional. 
It wasn't at all, but in his first trip to the plate, I hit him. After that, he moved back a couple inches and showed me some respect. End quote. This is an important distinction because the final showdown in 42 between Robinson and Ostermuller happens as the Dodgers are playing the Pirates with a chance to clinch the pennant. During the at-bat, Ostermuller, who's played by Link Hand in the movie, sums up much of the racial tension throughout the movie as he says, quote, you don't belong here and you never will, end quote. In truth, there's no proof that Ostermuller ever said this. And even more than that, all signs point to Austin Mueller being a great pitcher who simply respected Robinson as a great hitter. While the movie added some fiction to build tension at Austin Mueller's expense, the result of the game was similar. Just like in the movie on September 17, 1947, Robinson hit a home run off Austin Mueller. While Robinson's jog around the bases was not in slow motion like it was in the movie, it must have been a sight to behold. Robinson had a little bit of pop in his bat, but he really wasn't known for his power, so nobody expected him to hit a home run. And the home run that he hit against Austin Mueller was just one of only 12 home runs he hit that year in 151 games. Now, in the movie, Hollywood made it seem like the home run won the game for the Dodgers. In reality, it didn't. But it did put the team up 1-0 in a game that the Dodgers would end up winning 4-2. And it also wasn't a pennant-clinching game, as that actually came the following day. Still, as anyone who follows sports knows, any game that you can win in a pennant race is incredibly important. Robinson ended the 1947 season batting 297 with 175 hits, including 31 doubles, 5 triples, 48 RBIs, and scoring an impressive 125 runs of his own. The Dodgers ended up losing in a tough 7-game World Series to the New York Yankees for the title that year. But coincidentally, 1947 was the first year that the major leagues decided to hand out a Rookie of the Year award for the single best rookie in both National and American Leagues. Robinson won it hands down. Although the movie 42 ended with his first season, Robinson went on to have an amazing career. The next year, 1948, racial pressure eased just a little bit more as more black players joined the major leagues. One of the most notable being Satchel Paige, who became the oldest person to debut in the major leagues when he joined Larry Doby on the Cleveland Indians on July 9, 1948, just two days after his 42nd birthday. For Robinson, his career would lead him to becoming the highest paid Dodger in 1950 with a salary of $35,000. That's about $465,000 in today's dollars. Now, he had a batting average of 328 that year with 99 runs scored and 12 stolen bases. Also that year, the Jackie Robinson story was released. It was a film where Robinson played himself in Hollywood's first telling of his motivating story. While the Dodgers didn't win the title in Robinson's rookie year that's portrayed in the movie, eight years later, Robinson and the Dodgers would have a rematch when they faced the New York Yankees in the 1955 World Series. Again, the series went to a full seven games, and even though Robinson didn't play in Game 7 due to a manager's decision, this time, it was the Dodgers who came out on top, giving Robinson his first and only World Series championship. Robinson played one more season, retiring from Major League Baseball on January 5, 1957, at the age of 37. With Rachel faithfully by his side, Robinson continued to break down racial barriers after his baseball career. He became the first black analyst for ABC's Major League Baseball Game of the Week telecasts, and worked as the first black vice president of a major American corporation when he worked for the Chock Full of Nuts Company from 1957 to 1964. 
Jackie Robinson made his final public appearance on October 15, 1972, when he threw out the ceremonial first pitch before Game 2 of the World Series that year. Accepting a plaque in honor of the 25th anniversary of a Major League debut, Robinson said, quote, I'm going to be tremendously more pleased and more proud when I look at that third base coaching line one day and I see a black face managing in baseball, end quote. Nine days later, on October 24, 1972, Jackie Robinson died of a heart attack at his home in Connecticut. Three years later, Robinson's final wish came true when the Cleveland Indians named the unrelated Frank Robinson as their manager, the first black manager in Major League Baseball. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. If you want to learn more about the life of Jackie Robinson, you can visit his official website at JackieRobinson.com. I'd also really recommend checking out the Jackie Robinson Foundation, which was founded by his wife, Rachel Robinson, shortly after Jackie's passing. As of this recording, Rachel is still alive and active in the organization. You can find their website at JackieRobinson.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Based on a True Story podcast. Based on a True Story is on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre. Drop by, say hi, and let me know what you think. <laughs>